Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your podcast for discussions of films that didn't quite hit the mark or maybe got missed in the grand Hollywood tradition. Um, today we are here to talk about Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. Uh, last week we talked about Midnight Mass, one of his awesome uh, TV style offerings for Netflix. This is uh, a standalone, a feature film that he put out in 2019. Uh, so I am your amiable co-host, Tim. Joining me as always is Catherine. And we are, are back with episode two of the Flanacast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, looking at the varied and interesting career of one Mike Flanagan, uh, especially this film. Because um, this movie, I mean, we talked uh, last week with Midnight Mass about how, especially with Stephen King properties, Flanagan seems interested in adapting the unadaptable, right? And uh, this was was kind of in that category too, um, but not for the reasons you might think. Uh, so this book came out in 2013. 13, I believe, and uh, did well. Uh, it was kind of one of those Stephen King sequels that nobody was asking for. You know, like nobody was really pining to go back to the Overlook. So. It wasn't this a, a poll winner? Like he polled people on his website, what do you want me to write next? And he threw out this book and people were like, oh yeah, write that. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, obviously he'd had the idea, but he wasn't sure he wanted to take the time to execute on it. And then he kind of got some fan feedback. And, and you know, obviously Stephen King, I mean, The Shining was not his, his, where he burst onto the scene. But that's where a lot of people started to take him seriously. If they had missed Carrie and sort of the, like the paperback phenomenon that that was, The Shining was where people really stood up and were like, oh, okay. Uh, because it was legitimately terrifying uh, in book form uh, and remains so to this day. So Dr. Sleep revisits that world. Um, It's the story of an adult, Dan Torrance, uh, the little boy from The Shining, all grown up after his events at the Overlook Hotel, um, and attempts to kind of reach backwards and not only explain sort of what's happened to Danny, but give him some closure, sort of wrap up the ideas of the Overlook Hotel, but also sort of build out, you know, Stephen King has gone on now to expand on what The Shining is in the universe of Stephen King stories, right? Would you agree with that? I think that's become kind of a central focus of his in his stories, these special folks. I mean, uh, Jake is eventually revealed in The Dark Tower to have a shine. Um, like this this idea of of psychic kids basically or psychic people is kind of woven all throughout Stephen King's metaverse at this point. He loves and the Dr. kind of paranormal people. Like that's always been a thing yeah. that he focuses on. It's just people who are gifted in one way or another. Right. I mean, all the way back to you know, Firestarter, obviously, but even Carrie, obviously. I mean, his his first book was about a girl developing psychic powers as she went through puberty. You know. Um, so he's always been fascinated by it and and he's really sort of fleshed out what it means to shine and how the shining works. And Dr. Sleep sort of dips its toe back into that world and establishes sort of, okay, well, if there are these people who shine, who are their antithesis, right? Who, who is out there against them and, um, you know, kind of does some interesting things with it, but this was not a book that anybody was asking to be adapted into a film, at least not, not to my recollection. You know, nobody was like, where's my Dr. Sleep movie. Uh, it went into, sort of pre-production phase, script writing phase, pretty much right after the book came out. Because every Stephen King book 
gets immediately optioned to be well, a yeah. movie now. <laughs> like it just that's just part of the deal. And so um Akiva Goldsman had originally written the script and then it died. Like nobody was willing to produce it because Stephen King was not a hot property in 2014, 2015. Right. And at least, you know, not where he is now. But then a little thing happened. It came out. <laughs> yeah. And it made uh, so much money. For for better or for worse, we have the new It movies. Yeah. And so then it was just a scramble for King properties. And that's where we see Netflix, Gerald's Game, In the Tall Grass, his, his you know, co-writing. And if you ever want to go and- down, down a very, very scary, dark passage with me, there are some really bad King adaptations that we could tear apart on this path. Oh yes, um, uh, I hope to do thinner at some point. Oh, everybody yeah. loves thinner, right? Have you ever seen the the Dolan's Cadillac movie? Um, is that the one about the sheriff out in the desert with Ron Perlman? Is that that one? Um, no, that's Desperation. Uh, sorry, no, no, no. Sorry. The this sorry. one has um. Oh jeez. Well, he's already been on the the podcast because it's the dude. Uh, from Ghost Rider and Hunger Games. But anyway, he's in it. It's a terrible movie. So, like, I feel like Stephen King. Oh, Wes it, Bentley? Wes Bentley, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's not a great vehicle. Also, Christian Slater, no joke. Well, um, I mean, you gotta, gotta get down with the slate. I don't That's think works. I don't think I've ever said like the Owen Wilson wow so many times during wow. a movie where it's like, oh my God, that's wow. really happening, isn't it? Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's either one or the other with King. You know, either it's a fantastic adaptation or it's just dog shit. <laughs> there's very little middle ground. Yeah, there's there's not really any in-between space. Um, and Flanagan, uh, just like Darabont before him, has found a formula for King adaptations that works. He gets uh, it. He, he gets it. That's a great way to put it. So nobody was clamoring for this, but they were in a scramble for King properties. They already had a script. Uh, Kaiva Goldsman didn't want to be involved anymore, but you know they they had a starting point. So Flanagan, after the success of Gerald's Game, was consulted. Hey, do you want to do Doctor Sleep? And he agreed. Um, but the reason why this book was was considered extremely difficult to approach is because the movie exists mm-hmm. of The Shining, right? So I'm not. We don't have to go into it in, in great detail. But if you are unaware, Stephen King, he no likey Kubrick. The Shining. He has right? made his peace with The Shining. He has. It's it's a thing that exists and it is inescapable at this point. But, but up until yeah. up until the movie that we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> um, these the two the book and the film of The Shining existed in like completely separate spheres. I don't like. I'm. I guess I'm one of those weird people. I like the book and the movie equally because yeah, I don't even view them things. as the same thing. That it's not even the book is its own separate entity. So I thought that the two could never be married together ever. Yeah. And that was the common consensus, right? I mean, I remember when this movie came out and the, the sort of buzz around it when it was announced, oh hey, somebody's doing Doctor Sleep, it's a sequel to The Shining. And everybody was like, first, why? <laughs> just just why? Why would you do that? And then the second question was, how are you going to do that? Because Dr. Sleep, fundamentally, and this isn't a spoiler, starts from a different place, right? Because at the at the end of the original book version of The Shining, the Overlook is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Jack Torrance is 100% dead. 
redeems himself slightly by blowing up sacrifices himself. to save his family. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas in the, the Kubrick Shining, the Overlook is fine. Uh, Torrance dies in the snow, alone in the hedge maze, uh, while I, Wendy escapes. Because, I mean, the um, thing with Kubrick's Shining is, like, were you ever really in that hotel? Was any Did any of this happen? <laughs> like, is yeah, this I mean, even a real place? <laughs> it's just much more ambiguous. Kubrick yeah. took the basic bones of the, of the Shining story and then crafted a very different narrative out of yeah. it. And one that works functionally and satisfactorily on its own. It, without knowledge or any reference to the King's work at all, really. Might even be better um, without it. Um, there are certainly some people who would say that it is. Um, and, and Kubrick, you know, he he infused his films with his own interests and things that he cared about, and it's very obvious that that happened. In, and there, there have been entire documentaries of people trying to figure out what the hell is going on in The Shining, right? Like, some people think it's about the gold standard <laughs> currency. Like it's, it's out of this world, but in any case, it, it's a very different story. And I'm much, I'm much like you. I see them as independent things. I love the book for what it is. It's, it's kind of a schlocky, a little bit silly sort of slasher horror movie, but it, the slasher's your dad. Like it's, it's a very, it's a very personal story. Like there are moments that hit very hard in that book that I think Kubrick did kind of bring in, you know, the, the alcoholic father, the violence, the domestic abuse, the, um, you know, Kubrick apparently he he went a little too far on the misogyny part. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, like Shelley, Shelley Long. I'm so sorry for what Stanley Kubrick did to you on that movie. Uh, I'm so glad you still made your fairy tales. I loved them so. Um, uh, I'm glad you recovered enough to do that and and make those wonderful things. But uh, or uh, Shelley Duvall. Sorry about Shelley Long. Um, I'm glad she was able to do that kind of stuff because that movie was apparently a nightmare for her. Um, and, and I know that Kubrick had a plan and that was the point and blah, blah, blah. But still, right. You shouldn't have to suffer like that for your, your work. Um, but in any case, you know, Kubrick went his own direction. King had his own ideas. And so those two things diverged. So Dr. Sleep is a sequel to the book. Yes. Right. So, there is no overlook for Dan Torrance to go back to. It blew up, right? It's gone. Um, uh, Dick Halloran didn't die at the overlook. <laughs> that might Jack come Nicholson's as a shock to ex. some people. <laughs> um, he's he's alive and well, at least for, for some flashback sequences in the book. Now, the movie makes a modification to still make that work, but like he's just alive in, in you know, the book version because he didn't die at the overlook. He successfully got Wendy and Danny out via the snowcat. So, you know, there's some stark differences there, just basic plot elements. But then also the the sort of spirit of the book, the sort of nature of, of Danny and Jack's relationship, you know, it's all built around the, the novel, not the movie. But anybody walking into a theater seeing something that will most definitely be marketed as the sequel to The Shining is going to expect the Stanley Kubrick version. Yeah. You just can't get away from that. There's no way that you're not going to be able to do that. That movie established a visual vocabulary for horror films that is still a big deal. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just... I did not think that this would be a good idea. Even even liking Mike Flanagan as much as I do, I thought this was a bad idea. Yeah, this shouldn't work. This movie should be an utter failure on every level. Because what he's attempting to do to, to quite literally satisfy two entirely different masters 
by all accounts in cinema is an impossible task. Yeah. You cannot do this. And somehow Flanagan finds a way. He finds a way to do it. Um, I'm going to say it's through careful casting choices, intricate and really excellent camera work, um, establishing a fantastic tone, a great mood for the whole piece that you know sort of covers the entire thing and links everything together, even though there are some pretty wildly different parts going on here. Um, this, you know, I, I love Midnight Mass. I love all of his output for Netflix, but that long form storytelling gives you so much more space to get more right than you get wrong, right? You know, Flanagan, it benefits from that structure, right? When you've got seven hours to tell a story, you can screw up an hour of that and still be fine. You don't have that kind of forgiveness with a, a cinematic release. Now, this is a still exceptionally long movie. It's a two and a half hour, 240 minute movie. Um, but think, that's the movies. Direct, the director's you know, cut. I can't hang that on this movie or on the story itself because we have dumb, dumb superhero movies that are two and a half hours long. So I think that's just a bad movie trend. <laughs> dumb, dumb superhero movie part three. Thank you. Colon. That's where, that's where, you know, you can go two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes. Cause they're invested. They're not leaving. We have eight um, villains this time. That's right. Nine villains, seven celestials, yeah, whatever. So, but this is still Flanagan, you know, doing what he does best. Um, I think this may be one of the one of the best performances that Ewan McGregor has done in a very long time. And I say that as someone that respects Ewan McGregor as an actor a lot. Um, I, I think he has become a sort of work for hire guy in the last few years where he's just kind of taking projects that are interesting to him or <laughs> or it's seemingly here lately he's taking projects that his wife is working in. <laughs> Or his partner, I don't, I don't think they're married, but you know, obviously he's been with Mary Elizabeth Winstead for a while, and so he showed up in the Harley Quinn movie. She was in that playing Huntress, and you know, there's, there's just a lot of moving parts there. But, but I think Ewan McGregor is kind of like the glorious little heart of this movie, and um, again, playing a part that I don't think any actor would want to take on, which is the adult version of a child character that literally everyone knows. And it's it's just a fascinating thing. But so so where are you at with this before we kind of jump into, you know, our, our discussion of the, the, the film itself and all of its spoilery goodness? Um, well, I do love Ewan McGregor also, but for different reasons. He is beautiful. Um, he is he a is gorgeous man. One of the most beautiful men in Hollywood. Ever. Pro tip. Uh, if you want to see Ewan McGregor is most gorgeous. Watch all of his like travel across the world with Charlie Borman motorcycle Ooh. shows. Holy geez. Yeah. That man, when riding through the Andes mountains on a motorcycle in sub-zero temperatures can still. What a guy. Amazing. <laughs> what a guy. Amazing. <laughs> um, so, so it's one of those things I was going to be there for this movie because I, I like him a lot. I mean, I sat through all those star Wars movies because he was in them. Um, you're know, like in the end, like that was the reason. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, his performance is Obi Wan. I mean, we don't have to segue into a discussion of the prequels. We could certainly have that's its own podcast. That. Um, but I do not think he gets enough credit for how he crafts a performance that slides very, very naturally into Alec Guinness's performance as Obi Wan Kenobi in Episode Four. Well, and it's like, it's interesting. Really, that role him. is another takeover of a famous character, and he yep, managed to do it so. without being deeply offensive to the original vision for that character. 
Um, yeah. And I think he was perfect for this. Um, this, I like that this movie, I mean, when we get into the plot, but this movie does not focus too much on The Shining. And that is, in the end, I think, nope. what works for it, is that it acknowledges it, it incorporates it, it it draws, you know, the rest of the, the fandom of the book and the movie into it, and then just departs on its own path. And that, I think, is why the movie works. For sure. If it stayed obsessed with constantly referencing the original and, and trying to sort of set it up. Now, it does have very overt things. I mean, the the opening strains of the score is The Shining, right? Like, exactly. he's, he's planting his flag. But, but then even, really... even the opening notes, that is a famous piece of music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's even even using the, the Berlioz piece in the beginning of the film, you know, it starts on those same opening notes. That was still, you know, something that was referential when it was used in The Shining. So sure. that feels that feels even more appropriate to me. I kind He's of referencing the reference. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is. That's true. Um, so, I mean, I, I think this is a deft hand. I think it's Mike Flanagan has a, a almost preternatural gift for casting choices. Mm-hmm. Um, our discussion of Midnight Mass obviously reflected that as well. But pretty much this movie is, is perfectly cast. Um, there are, are no characters in it that I look at and say, you know, I just don't think that's the right person from the tiniest role. Um, somebody like Cliff Curtis, who's come in here to be a, a very minor character, but just sells it um, to the uh, the slightly larger Jacob Tremblay that we see in here, who's in the movie for moments, but is unforgettable Yeah. Um, to, you know, the obvious choices like Rebecca Ferguson uh, and even uh, Kylie Coran, uh, who plays Abra Stone. Um, just, just brilliant, right? One Flanagan cast knows how to cast children. Yes, um, I was is... about to say that. I was like, you know, <laughs> if anything, those Hill House kids proved he can find a compelling child actor. Because yeah, and this all movie, of those kids so, are amazing. Definitely, and you know, he pulls from a couple of them here. The the little girl at the opening of the film is, is one of the girls from Hill House. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just something that he seems to have a knack for. Uh, you know, more than likely, he just works with a really good casting director, mm-hmm. and and they have. They're very simpatico when it comes to their vision for what characters are supposed to be. And that's that's exciting, right? Because that's something that I think a lot of modern directors, I don't know if they're necessarily as good at that. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Spielberg had his run in the 80s was his eye for casting as well. Um, and and I think Flanagan is riding on those coattails a bit because he's cast some people that uh, Steven Spielberg cast, namely Henry Thomas, know, who man. shows up in this again. If I could uh, just start a fan club for that man. and Oh, and, there's got to be one, right? There must if be. there we, isn't, we'll join it, I'm ready right? to we'll be the, the president, the vice president and treasurer. Like, I am ready because he's so great. And this was a really difficult role for him, too. I, I can't um, even imagine. I yeah, I can't even imagine taking this role on and not just immediately feeling like you were making a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> um, in the wrong hands, and and I think fortunately Flanagan is the right hands, but in the wrong hands, what Henry Thomas was asked to do in this film could have you know it could have been easily garnered could have easily garnered a couple of Razzies if yeah. we want to call it that, um, but it doesn't. 
So just to sort of establish why we're talking about this film in the context of our particular podcast, um, Dr. Sleep was was decently received critically. It's got about a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes with a good number of reviews, so it's pretty stable at this point. Um, not overwhelmingly positive, but still fresh. Audience scores a little higher, which again, for an adaptation that literally no one was asking for, that's an accomplishment. Uh, at 89%, which is pretty cool. Um, and in reading through the reviews, really the only thing that, that was just the constant refrain was stuff like this. More like Dr. Sleepy. <sighs> what kind of doctor is he? An anesthetist? <laughs> Call me Dr. Bored. <laughs> uh, that was the most common refrain in most of the reviews. I mean, people had issues with, with other things as well. Don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, we'll say right off the bat, this is not a movie. If you were, okay, if you go to horror movies for the uh, bleh, style of horror, the same for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not. Well, There's and, a couple moments of those. And sure, I argue neither is The Shining. No, 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 no. I taught that uh, movie to modern audiences, to modern teenagers who grew up watching, you know, paranormal activity movies. Right. And they really By were comparison, not it's kind of dull. Yeah, they were not prepared <laughs> for the slow burn horror. But in the end, you know, once you, you get a, an understanding of what it means and how it's like, it's just not like these other movies you know there can be different kinds of horror then it's really engaging i think this movie kind of suffers from the same the same problems that people just want different things out of horror yes this this is a very particular kind of horror in many ways this feels this feels plucked out of the early 1980s in terms of its filmmaking style and its presentation right it's it's not it's a modern film it's it's made very well but this is not a, a horror film that is designed to, you know, this isn't a James Wan movie that's going to yeah. scare you and have these big bombastic moments. Um, it's more about tone and feel, which is really what a lot of the horror in The Shining is as well. <coughs> the horror of The Shining is not, oh, oh I'm, uh, you know, blood, gore, legs everywhere. You know, it's not that. It's. <laughs> Oh my God, my dad wants to kill me. Right. And, and he, he's insane. Like that's the terror of the shining and the isolation, the, the, uh, you know, sort of discombobulated nature of the overlook hotel as a space, you know, all of these things are there to sort of just make you feel unease. Um, and, and Dr. Sleep in its own way, not in as extreme a way as Kubrick approached it, but in its own way, it's trying to do similar things. But it has a lot more story ground to cover. The story of The Shining is a very simple one, right? It's a straightforward plot. Um, King adds a few complications here and there in the original story, but it's it's pretty much they get to the hotel, things get weird, Jack goes insane, family almost dies, boom, right? Like it's it's pretty simple outline. Uh, Doctor Sleep has a lot more going on under the hood, so it's it's got to move, and and Flanagan moves it. He really does, uh, but not without taking that sort of signature time to develop characters, to allow, allow scenes that kind of space to breathe. Just a, a really important sort of thing that he doesn't doesn't lose. And as a result, it feels like a bit more classic 
uh, in terms of its horror. It feels a bit more sort of, you know, a throwback, if you will, which which works in its favor in a lot of ways because large chunks of this movie are set in the early 1980s, uh, or at least some flashback sections. Uh, so I guess if you don't have anything else to say, we're going to uh, go ahead and recommend Dr. Sleep. I think you are definitely in that camp. Definitely. Yeah, if you haven't seen this, this is one to hunt down. I, sure. I don't think I'll ever not recommend Mike Flanagan's movies unless he just starts active. Like unless he signs <laughs> up to make like Something's scary movie change. or something. Right. I like I can't imagine I would not like what he's, he's doing. making Scream 6. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> he might. It could happen. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in that camp. Uh, this is one that also did not do very well at the box office. I guess we should mention that briefly. Um, the budget is real nebulous on this. I've looked at a couple different sources. Wikipedia, you know, places it like 30 to 55, which means basically we have no idea. Um, uh, the high estimates I've seen are around 60 to make this, which feels about right, right? Both in terms of its actors and also sort of the scale of the project. And there's there's a pretty goodly amount of special effects at the end of this once you know things kind of go where they go. Um, and it made about 70 to 75 million at the box office. So it didn't, you know, it didn't do terrible for a horror movie. But this is the, you know, this is why Jason Bloom's particular approach to horror is so effective. Good horror movies you can expect to make between 60 and 100 million dollars at the domestic box office most of the time, right? If it's decent, you might do a little better, but it's you know, you're kind of guaranteed that 60 plus in a lot of cases. You keep your budget at 10 million, 60 plus becomes smash hit. Yeah, your budget creeps to 50, 60 to 70 million is now a colossal failure, yeah. right? And and so it's it's really about that sort of understanding, but I don't know if you could have done this film at a lesser scale and done it well. So I, I'm glad that it exists. But a, a lot of what I've read online recently is that, uh, I guess one positive thing to come out of the, the pandemic is that uh, this hit streaming services, like several of them at the height of that. And so a lot of people found this movie during that time period. And it's sort of, you know, cult status has blossomed, which is exciting to me. Uh, not because I want a sequel, you know, I don't want Dr. Sleep 2, I don't want The Shining 3, um, <laughs> but it, it's exciting because it's a good story that I think if people engage with it and then do eventually pair it with the original sort of Shining, I think you can get a very interesting and satisfying, you know, sort of total story out of that. Which I think is probably why Stephen King was more likely to say, well, I don't hate this as much anymore, because Flanagan's trying desperately to reconcile these two things. And for the most part, he pulls it he does an excellent job. All right, so we're going to get into spoilers. Um, if you have not yet seen the film, go ahead and pause now. Come back after you get a chance to watch it or revisit it on your uh, streaming service of choice. I think it's on HBO Max right now. It sounds right. At least it was. Uh, but in any case, uh, let's get into spoilers. So this movie opens in 1980, right? The year of the shining. And the film is basically in real time um, that Dan Torrance really was five years old in 1980. And then Ewan McGregor's you know, grown up version of Danny Torrance, which the story takes place in 2011. Um, you know, we we basically followed him. You know, there's no 
sort of weird time jumps that are taking place here. It's it's gone on in real time, which I think is kind of a cool choice. And we are uh, Flanagan makes the decision instead of opening with Danny to open with the villains, uh, because <laughs> the big problem with Doctor Sleep, if you want to call it that, is the villains. And if you don't buy the villains, then you're probably not going to buy the movie. Um, that so, is almost a Stephen King trope at this point. It's it's pretty consistent. If you yeah. can't get behind the evil clown, if you can't get behind the murder hotel, like he just he has a thing about unconventional villains, and I've always really liked that about his work. Yeah, it's it's always surprising. The suspension of disbelief required is sometimes too much for a movie. Because folks, I don't think Stephen King likes RV people. I don't think he likes campers. <laughs> Who does? I don't think he likes it's them a at creepy all. cult of people. <laughs> don't think he's a fan of. Why RV don't you life. have a house? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm just kidding, RV people. I love you. Yeah, that's right. You, you, you do you. Even RV though folk, you are creepy and most likely a murder cult. Uh, but regardless, I don't think Stephen King's a fan of the life. Um, and. The, the villains of this piece, uh, we come to know them as the True Knot. They are an interwoven group of disparate people who they themselves either were given or had, in some strange way, uh, a special gift of their own. Right. So Stephen King is, is very much into cycles. He's very much into opposites, uh, yin-yang style concepts. And so if this really feels like him sitting down and saying, okay, if there are people in the world who shine, who are their antithesis, right? And, and this, this feels very Stephen Kingy to me, right? So people who shine are putting something into the world, right? They're, they're putting a shine into the world. They're, you know, I mean, if we want to get, you know, Christian biblical allegory here, you know, it's, you, you stay a guy standing on the hill versus putting it in the basket, right? Like when, that's the idea. And it's, and it's very vampiric. I mean, this is a very, close analogy to to a vampire myth because they are right. they are life vampires like right. they they're eat. taking things out of the world yeah right? they're sucking things away yeah um and and so they're they're vampires but they're psychic vampires yeah. right they're vampires that Fucking cool <laughs> psychic energy um and in the book i'll admit when i when he first sort of described them i was like what <laughs> what is Wait, what? I um, I loved it but, because I was such a big fan of um, some of the stuff that uh, Joe Hill has done, too. And he kind of goes with the psychic vampire thing in a lot of respects, which gets a yes. shout out in the, in the book. It does. Um, yeah. So I was down with it. But yeah, it's it's a little silly. It's, um, you know, very famously, Joe Hill's book Nosferatu deals mm. with a similar kind of character and he and his father have kind of woven their universes together in a couple of interesting ways. Um, and so this, this definitely feels like something that could have transmuted over from one of Joe Hill's ideas or at least through conversation. Uh, and I'm fine with that. Like I'm, I'm not a, a Stephen King purist. It's like King must always do this. One of the things that makes King a great writer is, is that unpredictability. You never really know what you're going to get. Uh, like in his last short story collection, he had a story about a, old man's first generation iPhone that calls people from the grave. <laughs> like what? It's such an elderly guy story to write. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, I had this <laughs> like, first iPhone. Stephen King's I mean, there's, boomer fiction era. There, there's straight up a line in it that's like, well, the first iPhone was kind of shitty, so maybe it was just broken, 
but it was broken in spooky ways. <laughs> like it's like basically that's the explanation for what's going on. And and it's fine. It was great. It was a really good story. I think they're adapting it to a freaking movie because why not? Um, I think it's just called Old Man Hannigan's Phone. I think that's the name of that, that uh, short story. Well, I hope they keep great. that title. Yeah, hopefully. So. <laughs> but you know, so the true not are the villains, and we're open. the The film opens with them, you know, sort of culling a child, and it's it's done extremely well. Very creepy. Uh, we're introduced to the main villain of the piece, uh, who. Rose comes over pretty much intact from the book rose the hat played here by rebecca ferguson uh and she's sort of i mean Ooh, she's that right mix of charming and terrifying yeah she mm -hmm. is lovely and very scary i really like her yeah she does a great job here and and uh she also plays uh she's the one who plays lady jessica in the new dune movie as well and she's she's quite excellent in that um but Rick Ferguson's kind of perfectly cast as Rose the Hat. Um, again, these are kind of cast as sort of like gypsy-esque folk. Um, again, it's not quite well, that, but you get the idea that these are, you know, these are drifters. They've been around for a really long time. There's a lot of old world stuff that kind of permeates their lives. Yeah, like I, I don't, because I, I had that dilemma when I read the book that I was like, well, is he doing a racism here with the, yeah, he, like Romani, Romani people? people like I just I kind of wrestled with that at first but then for me I started thinking about the connection because you mentioned RV people and that is such a thing to have these kind of transient groups that you know sell their homes and they they buy RVs and they travel in caravans and that in itself I mean even though you could connect it to you know an ethnic group I don't think it is here. I don't know. And especially Mike Flanagan does not engage in that in the movie, which I really, really like. Yeah, no, it's it's completely backgrounded. Like King actually tries to kind of explain their life and their culture a little bit, um, you know, sort of how they live. We get to hints here. Rose the Hat has a monologue later in the film where she's kind of talking about, you know, they've dined with kings and, you know. Well, yeah, like it almost feels kind of like stuff. like maybe they assimilated into a transient culture as these vampires just so that they could hide what they did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they would have to move. They but yet, stay. that isn't, I will admit that's not really articulated very well in either the book or the film. No. No, it's, it's sort of intentionally vague. And, and it works. I, I think the more you kind of peel back the layers of, of characters like that, outside of kind of what you need you're probably doing yourself a disservice in the story because it's not really necessary they're just the antagonists and you just need to see their threat and and so flanagan by opening with that i think he because i'm mostly referring to the director's cut here that's the version i've watched the most um so if there are some scenes in here that you know we get out of order with the theatrical cut i i apologize but um, I, I think the director's cut is the way to watch this. It's not substantially longer, but it does add quite a bit of additional character sort of work into it, especially some of the flashbacks with Danny and, and like Dick O'Halloran and uh, stuff like that. So opening with that, it establishes the threat. We know exactly who these people are. We know what they do. Then he very smartly just immediately ties that to a scene with Danny. So we know that it's happening in sort of the same time. You know, these people have been around for a while and, you know, it's mentioned several times in the story that if they've ever gotten if they'd ever gotten a whiff of Danny and his particular shine, they would have swarmed him right? like flies. And so 
our, our first little shot of Danny is is of uh, I guess it's is it him at home with his mom. Uh, yes, he's uh, isn't it where he's getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? I think so. Yeah, he has a bad dream. He gets up to go to the bathroom. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. He has a dream of the Overlook. Um, and so here's where we get the first of of several meticulously recreated shots from The Shining. Um, you know, they they had to rebuild it. Obviously, it's it's not the original set, so it had to be rebuilt exactly to scale, exactly to type, which in and of itself is just a massive undertaking, I imagine. Um, but we get several shots that are are pretty much direct emulations of shots from The Shining, um, in the form of sort of Danny's memories and dreams. So he remembers going into room two three seven, um, and then he wakes up from that dream, goes to the bathroom, and the woman from two three seven is there, and he wets himself because he's so scared. Um, and then we get a nice scene between him and uh, the uh, the girl we mentioned last week. What was her name? Uh, Foss. I don't remember, uh, but basically, the, again, Flanagan makes the choice to recast the actors instead of doing a digital de-aging or a digital double with face replacement. You know, in 2019, that shit was all the rage. It would have totally made sense to a studio to be like, well, we got to put Shelley Long's face on, on a similar looking actress. And and I hate and, that. And, and I hate when it, movies do that. And I wish that they wouldn't do that. And another reason that I love Again, is he just he'll just get two different people. I mean, Hill House is a great example of making that work with Hugh's character. Um, it is never a problem for it to be two different actors. You know, your audience is pretty flexible and they're not stupid. They can imagine that this is supposed to be the other person. Yeah, I, I don't know where in, in the Hollywood rule book they got the idea that I'm going to be just completely lost and confused if it's not the exact same face. Um, you know, I mean, there are entire, I mean, Marvel just replaced a guy like just straight up cheated him, right? It was just like, Oh, Terrence Howard was kind of a dick on Iron Man one. We're just going to replace him with Don Cheadle and pretend like nothing happened. Yeah. Right? And people were fine. Right. Could you imagine if we still had a digital, Terrence Howard in the Marvel universe what that would just you know like they haven't worked with him for years but they just have to keep sticking this horrible CGI face on an actor so that he can stand in the background and be warm using like like artificial intelligence to make new lines for him all the time. that's right well he won't come in to record the lines I guess we're gonna have to do a voice synthesis we're gonna have to call those people from Sweden for that I guess like I just, just I just hate that that movies bother with that because that's i don't even think that's a good use of a special effects artist's time <laughs> it's it's cool the first couple times you see it i remember when i first saw michael douglas in ant-man that was like the first one that i looked at and was like okay that's kind of cool you know but it was for like 15 seconds right it was just like yeah. uh, we need to see this guy being angry as a young man it's totally fine but yes it's it's just a, an unnecessary thing and flanagan sort of shows you guys can do this with good costume design Good haircuts, a little bit of facial prosthetics. Hair is everything. Um, um, because Alex Esso as Wendy Torrance. Esso, there you go. Half of it's that haircut. Yeah, it's so it's such an iconic haircut. Like that's part of it. Um, did you hear about uh, Halloween Kills? They they have a, a few new shots of Doctor Loomis, uh, the Donald Pleasance Doctor Loomis, and. After that movie came out, people were screaming because they're like, "Ah, oh, they CG Donald Pleasance, you bastards! 
How dare you, you pieces <laughs> of shit. Donald Pleasance is a saint. You, you know, like just on and on and on. And then they released pictures. It was a prost- it was a full prosthetic makeup. It was like their their construction foreman who was about the right size. And they just freaking put him in a Donald Pleasance. They just made him up to look like Donald Pleasance. It's not it's that just hard. just a dude. And, I mean- <laughs> and so everybody who was like, ah, oh, that terrible CG bullshit again. And it wasn't CG, right? It's like, geez, man. But that's, but that's what generally fans want. It's like, oh, find a more interesting way to get this done. And then, but now even if they do, it's just going to get like, ah, the internet sucks. You know, like it's just the worst. But so, you know, Flanagan decides to recreate this universe using not just lookalike actors, but really good actors. Who are capable of inhabiting those characters. Yes. Because the characters are what matter. Shelley Long made Wendy Torrance a character and made her real for generations of horror fans. But Wendy Torrance is just a character. Yeah. Find an actress who can play that character. And, and you, you know, you've got it. Actors and actresses who are, are young now, like Alex Esso, they grew up seeing these characters. Like they know how to emulate wendy torrance because they grew up watching that performance and thinking wow if only i could be an actor like that i mean everyone has seen her as wendy torrance you know if you're going to be in a movie called dr sleep the sequel to the shining come on so i just like that he allows he allows performers to give it a shot to do their best to just try it why not and it and, and the result is amazing even the little kid who plays you know young Danny Torrance does a great job. He does. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, that's a difficult task in and of itself, right? To be a child actor and being asked to emulate a child from a, you know, previous film, that's not easy either. And, and this actor, you know, he did a great job as well. So another sort of great choice on Flanagan's part. But ultimately, this is in service of setting up sort of how Danny is going to choose to deal with his trauma from the overload. And we discover this by, a meeting on a bench with our, our Dick Halloran, uh, played here by Carl Lumbly. And as a, a gigantic Alias fan, when that show was on, before I realized that J.J. Uh, Abrams basically has three tricks and he just does them <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, Carl Lumbly is it, it amazing was, in this. He, he does such a good job. Scatman Crothers, is, he Scatman was so character. warm and friendly. And it's one of those characters that you kind of just like love him immediately. That that's that's the one that felt like, man, they could really mess this up. And they didn't. It, it was just great. Yeah, it works super well. And and so he gives Danny some advice, you know, and, and introduces a, a central idea, which is that the world is a hungry place. And there are always going to be people who are trying to eat. Right. And you, you can't get in the way of that. And, and I like that, you know, whereas King, the true not is this malicious force in 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 Flanagan's version of this universe. It, they are, don't get me wrong, they're very malicious, they're evil, but yet he sees them as a sort of natural predator, right? They grew up in the world as a function of nature itself. And, you know, I think that's touched upon in the book, but he kind of makes it a central idea um, and and sort of plays that out in some really interesting ways. And so we get some really great flashbacks. They feel like the 1980s, you know, the, the production design is great. The costume design is great. Uh, I really love the little subtle details about the apartment that Wendy and Dan share, you know, they're, they're obviously very poor, but yet they've got, you know, she's got a little sign for him on the door. He's got 
couple little toys, you know, it's just that all felt very genuine to me. You know, typically a production designer who goes and says, oh, this is a kid's room. You know, it's just going to be full of junk. Just There'd be like crap. eight Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> yeah. Go Green Lantern style. How many Rubik's Cubes does this kid have? He's the coolest. Um, but it's 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 tamped down and realistic given where these people actually are, what their lives are, are like now. And so that was really cool. And, uh, you know, so we get this and, and then we pretty much flash almost immediately to our adult Dan Torrance. Uh, after we find out that, in essence, to deal with all of these nightmares from the Overlook, he is going to lock them away in lockboxes in his mind. So when these things come after him, and they're going to for the rest of his life, that's pretty much what Halloran tells him. It's like, you're, you're never going to be able to get away from these things. They're always going to come for you. Uh, his shine is too bright. That's another thing he, that that King loves to to put in his books: the burden of gifts. That, oh yeah, you know it's never a good time when you have this really cool power. Yep, you can do this cool thing, but man, you're going to catch hell for it. Sorry about that. And and that's pretty much the setup here. And, and then we get these these boxes, which are lined up in the frozen hedge maze of the Overlook Hotel, right? In, in sort of their infinite fashion, and that's where he is storing all of these things when they come for him. And it's, it's just a beautiful visual. It's a lovely thing to sort of, and that's another sort of big thing that I think Flanagan gets right about this is how he presents the psychic abilities of the characters. It's presented very matter of fact. It's not goofy. Really the biggest scene that we get is the sort of Rose trying to find Abra later in the film uh, where she's like flying through the world to try and find her and stuff. Everything else is very sort of tamped down, right? It's like, no, it's just, it's like this. And this is how it works. I'm going to touch your hand and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I really appreciate that because I think you could go too big with this and then it just becomes, and then Dan Torrance is just a superhero. Yeah. You, well, it's, right? it's over explaining. It's like, you know, the, the great thing about the paranatural is that you, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to, it's unexplained. Right. That's why it's cool. <laughs> And, and King is very good at balancing that in his novels, right? He explains just enough so that you have your kind of rules if you need them, but he's not the guy that's going to spend three pages explaining how all this shit goes down. Uh, he has no interest and that's to his benefit. So Danny gets his little, you know, lesson from Halloran and then he is able to, to sort of eliminate a demon, but then we flash forward and there's a Danny, price. <laughs> Danny doing so great. Yeah. Like it turns out carrying all of these hideous demons around inside your brain in lockboxes is bad for you. That's right. It's it's rough. And and of course there's heavy implication that his psychic abilities have continued to expand. And, you know, now he struggles to sort of drown out the the voices, you know, the people around him who are talking and, and he does that by self-medicating, by addiction. Just so like he's, exactly. It sets up this very interesting parallel that, that basically in running from his father and what his father did, Dan becomes his father. And there's a beautiful sequence later that kind of reconciles that idea that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, so we find Dan Torrance and this is pretty much exactly like the book. He wakes up after a night of uh, drinking, drunken brawl um, with a woman in bed who, who may be dead, who probably is dead. Um, she's vomited all over herself and she is not moving. He uh, leaves to get up, realizes that she's stolen all his money. So she, he steals all of her money 
and then realizes that she has a baby that uh, he is unaware of. And the baby is now awake and he makes the decision basically to just ditch. And uh, it's, it's a painful scene. It was a painful scene in the book and, and McGregor sort of establishes the sort of deep and unending well of ennui inside of Dan Torrance at this point and just how miserable he is in his life, you know, and, and in essence, this is his rock bottom, right? Yeah. So, this is a, a film that touches upon Flanagan's particular interests, family, sp- specifically father relationships, alcoholism or addiction in general, recovery. This is kind of right up Flanagan's alley. I can see why he would be interested in doing this because thematically we have seen him wrestle with these ideas in all of his other work in one form or another. Uh, you know, mental health, another huge you know thing that he is, is interested in sort of exploring in his work. And so Dan decides to get straight. He hops on a bus, goes north as far as he possibly can. You know, it's the end of the line, quite literally, uh, and attempts to remake his life. And that's kind of where the movie kicks off. Uh, I did love, did you notice the name of the bus line? Don't think I did. Maybe I did, but I don't remember. What is it? Um, it is Tet Bus Line. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, there we get a... He calls that he rides on the Tet bus lines, and there is a later reference to uh, Ka being a wheel, right? <laughs> so Flanagan has pulled some some ideas in from again. King has has mythologized these concepts in the intervening years between The Shining and now, right? Not just what The Shining is and how it functions, but the place of these special people on the wheel of destiny if you want to call it that. And, and as a result, Flanagan is as some filmmakers might is not turning a blind eye to those developments, right? As a King fan an avowed King fan, um, he is, is made the decision to kind of work those things into the background a bit. And that really works. Uh, I think that's super cool. Uh, it's, well, it, it works that's the kind of, he doesn't King take Easter it too far. He doesn't go too right. far with trying to, establish you know this this movie's place in in the king universe you know he's still kind of doing his own artistic interpretation of stephen king but he's pulling in a lot of cool outside stuff right yeah he's sticking to the story but he's fleshing out the world in in sort of cool ways so danny winds up in new hampshire um and uh this was another feature of the book that i thought was interesting uh this this town has a tiny town it's got a teeny town, um, which is a teeny version of the town in the middle of the town that you can go and play in as a kid. And they've got a little train that goes around it. And this is where he ends up working is helping be a maintenance man at teeny town. Uh, these exist, especially in new England. Uh, I believe the McElroy brothers have a teeny town in their hometown where you can go and like drive a little car around the streets and all of that stuff. So this is a, a thing. It's a new England thing. Um, small but, towns uh, are weird. Small um, towns are weird. And and I think there's no better writer to to uh, talk about weird small towns than Stephen King. He may put them all in Maine for the most part, but he gets the small town weird. That's right. Yes, he is. He's fully aware of small town weird. So we do get a couple of little scenes. Uh, the true not go hunting for a new member. Uh, we, we kind of get a it's it's more than just that. But it one of the things I love about Flanagan 
is that his scenes that he writes generally have more than than two or three objectives running in the background, right? We've got a couple of things we need to do here. So here, whereas some some writer directors are very purpose built with scenes, I'm going to have a scene where we do this and we learn this and we understand this and then we move on. Flanagan is, and maybe it's because he's done TV and TV, you kind of have to move like this to meet your your time and your schedule kind of have to have scenes that do more than one thing because you don't have time to set up your camera for every tiny line. But we we get a scene with the true knot where they are researching someone and deciding basically if they want to kill them and, and drink their steam, as they call it, their the psychic energy, or if they want to bring them into the group as a new member, which does a couple of cool things. One, it sort of implies that they're desperate for more people, that they're starting to lose people, which we see is true. But it also sort of establishes the mechanics of how they do what they do, right? We hunt around, we find somebody that has these abilities, and then we eat them, right? We're, we're you know, hunters in that way. So there's a lot going on there, as, as well as establishing this new character and helping us understand how she's going to play a role in the story. So just really cool uh, stuff. But in essence, Ewan McGregor, uh, as, as Dan Torrance here, he gets the opportunity to sort of start afresh. And he's given that by a, a local man named Billy, played here beautifully by Cliff Curtis. Cliff Again, I Curtis can... is a gift from God. I love that Jesus, man. Jesus, man. Just every movie that he's in is great <laughs> because he's in it. Like, yeah. he's my favorite thing in Sunshine. And I know we already talked about that movie, but I, I didn't really uh -huh. talk about him enough. He's so good. And he's yeah. great in this. He's, again, Flanagan, as a director, what I love about his work with his actors is that he just gives them space to do what they do. Um, and one of the reasons why I think watching a Flanagan movie might feel slower than other films is because he doesn't cut that much. I mean, he cuts, don't get me wrong, I mean, but he lets takes go. It's sort of that mini, you know, mini wonder that Spielberg has gotten so good at. It it there, you know, it's not like this huge thing, well, He's capable of that because he made an entire episode of a television show that was one shot. Um, but he just lets these things play. And as a result, it gives the actors much more space to emote, right? And emote completely, not just single insert reactions, right? So when he's shooting his coverage of two characters talking, he's more of like a deep, deep focus over the shoulder guy. And then he just holds there instead of doing like an insert cut of a close up. Right. He just stays. And as a result, it allows those two actors to really interact and really have moments. Obviously, he mixes it up for various scenes, but that is his more consistent approach to shot reverse shot, which I think is is just a really fascinating thing. And it is very atypical of modern filmmaking because it's hard. Right. Like you you have to trust that your actors are going to get there. And if and if there's one mistake, it's a reset. Right. And it feels like the actors most likely have a lot of input on how scenes play out. It feels collaborative, right? It feels genuinely collaborative and all film is collaboration, right? There, you know, we can talk about exactly. a director being sort of the, the, the key component, but Flanagan feels the type that is truly sort of truly working with these folks. And, and as a result, I think he gets really interesting things out of them. Again, I think this is one of the better performances by Ewan McGregor that he's done in a while. And again, not because he's a bad actor, not at all, but because I think Flanagan gives him the space to do what he does. And that's the key. Um, 
so things keep moving uh, in the novel. We're jumping a couple of years here. Uh, time is passing relatively quickly. Well, we meet Abra. Right. That's really the next kind of big thing is that someone reaches out to Danny psychically. Right. And the way that Flanagan chooses to do it in the book and I or in the movie. And I don't remember if it was this way in the book. He's got like a chalkboard wall mm-hmm. in his room. Uh, and it was just a chalkboard. In- that's right. That's right. And this one, it's like the chalkboard paint wall. Which works and, really And well. they start, yeah, it's it's adorable. I, I love it. But they start sort of, you know, going back and forth. But that's, but not until Dan gets clean. Because that's what needs to happen before he can sort of reconnect with that part of his brain. So we also get another thing that apparently Mike Flanagan really loves to shoot, which is AA meetings. Um, and he's damn good at it. And My like, goodness. Like I said, I mean, I, I have had you know a person in my life who has been to those meetings and i've seen firsthand what they're like and boy does he ever nail it you know he always has a supernatural bent to it i've never been to a supernatural aa meeting where there were psychics um but but he definitely gets the tone of them just pitch perfect yes and this is kind of where you start to feel dan torrance's life begin to to turn around and it's it's really cool. It, it's done very well. You can feel the sort of buoyance of hope that comes out of him, and then also the slow, you know, reawakening of his psychic ability. Um, because what I also love about Mike Flanagan is that he'll just put Bruce Greenwood in this movie. <laughs> Bruce Greenwood's in this movie for like two and a half minutes. I mean, and it's obviously because of Gerald's game. They obviously had a good time with that and and enjoyed themselves, and so he brought him back. But I don't know many movies that would trot Bruce Greenwood out for literally one scene or two scenes with a character. Um, but he's so good in this. Uh, again, p- pitch perfect casting is this sort of recovering, you know, New Hampshire doctor. <laughs> and it, it's great. But so, you know, Dan begins this path of recovery. Once his life starts sort of falling back into place, he's got some stable work. He's, you know, found a place to live where he's not you know, in the gutter or just burning all of his money on drugs. It, it his life starts to slide into place. And that's when he meets Abra Stone psychically. And in the book, they have a sort of psychic back and forth relationship for months, uh, maybe even a year before they, they ever sort of are forced into meeting each other. And well, and, in, and it's really, you know, kind of spread out because our, our introduction to Abra is montage in nature, which is probably yeah. good because it wants to show us like her, her life as learning how to use the shine and her life. It has to be pointed out is so different from Danny's life. Cause you know, Danny was the, the son of, of an alcoholic and domestic abuser. And he had a really, really difficult upbringing. And then he had that terrible experience at the overlook. Abra, on the other hand has a relatively good life with supportive, right. loving parents and she has all of the opportunities, you know, ahead of her. So her take on the shine when we meet her is a wholly positive one. Um, right. Yeah. She doesn't see it as a curse. It comes in a little bit later, but when, especially when we first meet her and she's young, it's this cool thing. Yeah. She can do. You know, it's, it's childhood magic. Um, but it's the cool thing is that whenever she does something very, very big, Danny feels it no matter where he is. Right. And she can feel him. Yeah. 
Now, in the book, there's more of a defined reason for this. Yes. Which the film omits completely, and I'm fine with it. It leaves it open. Uh, I think at one point the script did include it. But even for King, this is a bit on the nose. But in essence, in the in the book, Danny is Abra's uncle, unbeknownst to either of them. Now, she calls him Uncle Dan in the movie constantly, and I think that that is intentional. But it is never specifically revealed, as it is in the book, that Abra's mother, Lucy, I think, Lucy or Lisa, I don't remember, is an illegitimate child of Jack Torrance from a dalliance that he had when he was teaching at the school. That he eventually, I assume, got kicked out of for for drinking, which is is hinted at. In the, so in essence, you know, Dan has a sister that he doesn't know about, and now Abra is the product of that sister, and she has the same sort of powerful psychic abilities that Danny does. I think it is much more mysterious and magical and fun to not have any. Uh, yes, I think it's a smart choice on Flanagan's part. Again, the relationship between Abra and Dan is the same, yeah. right? She still looks to him as a mentor, but and that I think this may be a generational take that you know, sure, we don't look at families the same way that we used to. I mean, I think overall, you know, the, the consensus in the world is found family is always best, um, because those are the people you care about the most. So I kind of like that it dispenses with that that bloodline idea. Um, I think that's, it's much more approachable and it's, it's a lot easier to relate to because instead of having this, you know, family connection, they just have a connection over this gift. They just have a connection. Exactly. Much like Dick Halloran and and Dave, which, which is, is really the mirror relationship that Flanagan chooses to, to set up. Now, I also think that King chose to do it because as, as I mentioned I guess in last week's podcast as well, Dr. Sleep is as much about the redemption of Jack Torrance as it is about the redemption of Dan Torrance. Mm. And I think in a, in a not so subtle way, Stephen King was trying to say that because Jack shined and the movie does mention this too, that the Overlook Hotel ate him just like it wants to eat Dan. Yeah. And just like it wants to eat Abra and that he just didn't have the resolve because of his addictions and his inability to master them, to fight it. And so it, it feels like a little bit of a pass to Jack Torrance, a little bit of a, you know, sorry this happened to you, man, which, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily say is a good or bad thing. Uh, I think, you know, Jack Torrance needed to, he did bad things and being punished for them was not necessarily bad. Um, but yeah, so the, Flanagan omits it. I think it's a smart thing for him to do. We flash forward eight years, and now Dan is totally cleaned up. Ewan McGregor has shaved. <laughs> that's glorious. all it takes. <laughs> uh, that's that's all you need. That's how you know he's not uh, he's not bad anymore. But we we saw right before that that sort of jump in time that he has started working as a hospital orderly or, or an orderly hospice. at a at a hospice. Um, and this is where the the title. That's right. This is where the title of the book comes from is the patients eventually begin referring to him as Dr. Sleep because he uses his psychic gifts to help them navigate their transition into the next life. Um, this, I think, when I got to this point in the book, and it happens relatively early, I it was one of those moments where I go, God damn it, Stephen King. 
God damn it. You're so good. That's, that's such a fucking good idea. <laughs> Shit. Um, I guess that's why know, they you, pay you the big bucks, huh? <laughs> that's right. That's why you live in like 17 mansions and, you know, whatever. But it's such a great idea for a character like Danny. I mean, it's it's a perfect marriage of helping him to become a, a person who becomes a source of strength, who helps people navigate these things and move into this place that once scared him very deeply, but also that it gives him peace. It gives him a connection to the people around him, which he had never felt before and allows him to hone his gifts. Right. Cause, cause Dan has to grow as a psychic. again, And, and see them positively because right. like with Abra having a very positive life and a very positive family experience, she views her gifts totally differently, and he has always seen them as negative. And this whole journey of cleaning himself up, it's its partially him making peace with what he can do. Yes, and, and what his role is. And it's its just, it's, it's executed really well. And I, I think that it, it does everything it needs to do to set up, because really this, we're... In the, in the director's cut, once that starts happening, we're about 45-ish minutes into the movie, which in this film is, is basically the end of the first act. So the first act of this movie is about introducing the True Knot, marginally introducing Abra, and then seeing Dan Torrance get his shit together. Like, that's really what this first act is about, because nothing else can happen until those things are in place. Um, and then Flanagan kicks off act two with baseball boy um so we've talked before about make or break moments in films um you know obviously one of your big trigger spots as it is for many people is is things like animal harm um which this movie anytime i enter into anytime i sit down to engage with stephen king's work whether it's in film or book or Heck, I'm even scared to look at his social media posts sometimes because that dude loves to use animal harm to get a point across. Yeah, he do. He do. <laughs> I mean, if there's a dog in a Stephen King book, it's going to die. It's It just will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, he, it's, it's almost Kuhnsian in his ability to <laughs> harm animals. Um, but yes, it's... Basically, we get a short series of, of scenes that, that tell us that the true not are kind of desperate for yeah. shine, right? That the, the shine in the world is diminished. And as a result, their food source is diminished and they are struggling to continue this raucous roll through the world where they, you know, enjoy this, this life everlasting for this, this very specific price. And so they, they emit psychic waves. They look for people. Uh, we find out that Rose the Hat's, I guess, lover, really, uh, Crow Daddy, mm -hmm. is is the hunter. He's the one that travels around, reads newspapers. I assume he's at libraries reading through microfiche at various points in time because, uh, you know, that's just what you do. Um, Wasn't that the same the actor that was in Westworld who plays Crow Daddy? Uh there's a great chance it's. I think it is because I really like that actor. Uh, yes, I am pretty sure. Yes, he played Akacheta in in. Um, the guy's was a that boss. season two. <laughs> yes, no, that, that was, was season. 
No, that was season one. Was it? Because he was remember. in Kiksuya. Um, yeah, he's a he's a total. No, it was boss. season two. Really it was season character. two. Yeah, he's he's a great. He was in Bone Tomahawk, and and he's yeah. just he's done a great great bunch of stuff, and, and he's really good in this. This this hunting process is is how they find them, and then they travel in their caravan to find one of these people, and they harvest them. And so they find a boy in Iowa who seems to. <laughs> He never misses a hit, right? He hit, always hits the ball. It's like he knows where the pitcher's throwing the ball. And I, I love that because and, that's how small the detail is that they're looking for for someone who shines. That, you know, it's just a kid who wins all of his baseball games. Yeah. And and Dan had talked about it earlier with Billy, and it's, it's heavily uh, insinuated that Billy has a bit of shine. Uh, because Billy says, oh, sometimes I just know what's going on inside people and I, I know I need to help them and stuff like that. And that's why he helps Dan in the first place. And and Dan eventually tells him like, okay, this this feeling that you have, like it's a thing, right? It's not just intuition. It's it's a thing. And, um, you know, I think that it's it's just kind of a neat way to, again, expand on what we know about The Shining as, as an ability within Stephen King's world. And so... The true not are, are quote unquote suffering. They have repositories of steam that they can release if they just really need a snack, a morsel, if you will. Uh, you know, a, a roadside diner pancake of psychic pain. And some of the the members of the the group are very old, and they they have to be like topped off with steam a little bit more regularly. Yeah. So you kind of get the idea that they are in crisis. Yes, this is the things are bad, uh, more worse than they expect. And, and we see this illustrated specifically through um, Carol Strucken. Uh, and this was Carol Strucken's last film performance. Uh, you may know him as Lurch uh, from the Adams Family films, The Fireman from Twin Peaks, um, all over the he place. A, a, a horror icon. A bunch of times. Yeah, he was he was Loxwana Troy's uh-huh. attendant. <laughs> In Star Trek The Next Generation for many years, Mr. Hom. Um, just a, a marvelous actor, uh, an incredible physical presence on screen. Uh, and, so and he plays in this movie. Wow. Yeah. Oh, what yeah. A scary he, character. He gets to do some interesting stuff in this film. But so he is obviously dying. And uh, that's another diversion from the book. In, in the book, after they eat Baseball Boy, um, he gives them measles. And it starts running through them and killing them. Uh, in this one, they're just starving. And, and even Baseball Boy is not enough to give them. And I think that's probably a better conceit for a film. I just, that's just more it's, straightforward. It's simpler. And it, yeah, and it simpler. harps on the vampire thing a little bit more. Right. Yeah. It's it sort of, again, they're, the reason why they're suffering is very clear. It becomes then prime motivation for why they need to find Dan and Abra because they're desperate. You know, it's, it, it all plays together. Um, I do have to call out when, uh, Crow Daddy is there observing the boy before they decide to kidnap him. Uh, there's a guy who's talking about him in the stands. Uh, it's like, oh, this kid's great. Watch him. He never misses a hit. Blah, blah, blah. That guy in the red baseball cap is Danny. That is Danny Lloyd, the original Danny from The Shining. Um, the boy who, who didn't know he was in a horror movie. That's right. So precious. Um, yep. And and so Flanagan brought him back just in a little teeny tiny cameo just so that he could be a part of, of this again. Gives him a, a speaking role so he gets some residuals. Uh, it's a lovely thing to do, even though he is, has not acted since. So <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why would you come back after that? You just wouldn't. 
Um, so then we get the baseball boy scene. Uh, and this was a pivotal scene in the book. This is kind of what kicked off the, uh, the sort of, you know, standard Stephen King sprint to the, the final act. Um, but they, they brutalize this kid and we find out that it's not just killing them that releases the steam. It's pain, right? They have to die screaming for this, this to happen. You want to feed on little kid fear because it's delicious. <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's, it's disturbing to watch. This is, this is a this hard is sequence. Terrible. Yeah, the, in the director's cut, it's worse. It's longer. Um, uh, we do have to have another shout out here. But I to also, another... uh, well, I was just going to say, I also kind of like when a movie is willing to go there because it, it really does push the true knot out of like freaky cool vampire cult who kills bad people to, oh my God, they're monsters. Yeah, this this solidifies them as the creatures that they are, right? Not just like weird, intimidating folk that's uh you know are kind of strange and have weird practices but no these are monsters and and they deserve everything that is coming to them uh in in very Stephen King fashion right this is how Stephen King delivers his villains on a platter right he's not just going to he he's going to make it complicated there're going to be aspects to them that you kind of understand you kind of get but at the end of the day you know they bad and and these people are are real bad uh, but this this event is so powerful that Abra Stone, whose abilities have continued to compound and grow, uh, she is there. She's able to sort of psychically connect to the moment and observe what's going on. Um, and so this is is what kicks everything off as she and basically she, touches it's them. Great, it's great because it's like she's there with them and and Maggie that or. Different book. Um, Rose the Hat senses her presence. Really, really cool. Right. Great, great flashbacks to the the dream scenes, you know, where Danny is traumatized in the original Shining, too. Yeah, even the shot where she's staring directly into the camera, just kind mm -hmm. of shaking. That's meant to be an exact hallmark back to Danny so you know, and his enraptured fear. The, the story now becomes... She's touched the true knot. The true knot know who she is or no no sort of a vague idea of where she is. And and they're going to start hunting for her. And she reaches out to Dan for help by writing murder or red, red rum, rum on their uh, shared chalkboard wall. She actually carves it. That was really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, it was a neat effect. It was really cool. It sort of explodes into existence. And um, again, there's just, there are great, scenes of psychic stuff happening right the next big one is uh rose the hat is in a supermarket shopping uh you know something very domestic very normal i mean there's just fucking bud light in her cart right i mean it's, just, it's, very, <laughs> it's very domestic and very like oh i'm just a person shopping at the local piggly wiggly i gotta stock up and the rv with some bud <laughs> she connects to abra psychically and they see each other and, and flanagan does he communicates it all pretty much just through the language of film, right? Sort of how Ryan Johnson chose to let Ray and Kylo Ren have a conversation just by using shot reverse shot, even though they were in different locations, right? It's, it's that idea, but Flanagan pushes further. He has, you know, Rose's hand reaches around to touch Abra's head through some, some nice match cutting. And then, you know, Abra is able to sort of psychically affect Rose and Rose is now, very aware of how powerful this psychic actually is. Um, it's, it's a really cool sequence. And, and this movie is full of them. Again, I, I won't say that it's exciting. This is not an exciting film, right? 
but it is an enthralling film. If you let yourself get pulled away by this story, I think it's really effective. But if you're coming into this for more traditional horror jump scares, uh, I, I think you'll probably be disappointed. Uh, but so this finally prompts Abra and Dan to meet uh, and and connect for the first time. Uh, and and it, it's shot almost exactly the same as the bench between Dick and Danny as a kid. Um, a little bit, a little bit more, you know, sort of standard, but um, you know, it's, it's a really cool moment. Like Flanagan doesn't have a lot of time to establish the burgeoning relationship between these two and, and how it's continuing to mature, but he does a lot with the time that he does have. And, and you kind of buy their relationship completely aside from the fact they've been communicating psychically for like years. When their meeting um, is just very sweet. How she, she like senses his presence. And, and just kind of moves toward the tiny town because she can tell that he's there. <laughs> right. And then they immediately recognize each other. It's just, it was really, right. really adorable. I kind of like those, I don't know, I like that Flanagan is able to work heartwarming moments into his horror. Yeah. I know a lot of people don't like that. They don't, um, but it's really kind of his thing. I need it because I just witnessed people brutally murder a, a small child after his mm-hmm. baseball game. Um, yeah. So I kind of need something heartwarming to, to pull me back up out of that, you know, that pit of despair. I think it's because Flanagan, and even if he swings too far in this direction, sometimes Flanagan is, it understands intrinsically that true fear comes from, from love, from relationships, right? Like, you only care about someone dying if you love them, right? Like, uh, I watched just a little bit of uh, Marcus Nispel's uh, 2009 Friday the 13th remake. I'd never seen it. I'd had people talk to me about it. I'm not a Friday the 13th guy. I don't really like any of those movies. They're they're fine. I'm not saying anything against them. They just are not my cup of tea. I, they're kind of rote, kind of repetitive. Even that one with Crispin Glover where he gets like the corkscrew through the eye. It's just, you know, it's fine. It's great, but it's not my thing. But I was like, I wanted to watch this one because the... I, I'm starting to sort of craft an idea of my head in my head of the the sort of late 2000s horror remake assance that happened where just everybody was remaking classic horror stuff in 2009. And, and so I wanted to watch a little bit of it for that. And I, I barely made it 20 minutes. And I was like, I can't do this. I just, and it wasn't that it was terrible, but it was, I was so unengaged and I gave so few shits about anything that was happening. That it was just really hard to care. And Flanagan, again, even if he may swing too far to the other side, he wants you to care. And he wants the relationships that these people have to be central to the story. And that gives it power, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, again, I, I know I talk about my, my partner a lot and, and how you know she's no big fan of horror films. She watched the entirety of this with me and loved it. Completely engaged. I think, you know, I think that is... That is a testament to what Mike Flanagan does, you know, with characters and with balancing horror with other things that we need to kind of bridge Tell those. Tell good stories. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, it still yeah. has to be a good story, right? Like, it still has to be a story that you want to see what, what happens. What a concept. Right? Yeah, I know, right? Especially in horror, where I'm just here for the boobies and the axes. But it's The it, boobies it's something and the murder. The mo- the murder boobies. All of the booby murders. 
<laughs> if I don't You're see an axe in a Roth picture. There it is, yeah. If I don't see an axe in a boob <laughs> in five seconds, I'm done. Um it's it's just something I, I like about Flanagan. And I respect that somebody's still trying to do that. And there are other people too. Flanagan is not the only standard bearer for this kind of of sort of more atmospheric horror and storytelling, but he is certainly one of the most active and one of the most viable, in my opinion. Um, so as that relationship grows, you deepen your love for Abra. You certainly deepen your love for Dan as he becomes this kind of mentor figure and a good one. Uh, mostly he's, he's still afraid, right? Cause that's the one difference between Abra and Dan that they can't shake is that, Abra has grown up with these powers being an ally. Dan has grown up with them being a point of fear. Right. And so that's something that he can't easily shake. But then we get probably the the craziest sequence of the film, but perhaps one that that might be its best. And that is when Rose the Hat attempts to psychically invade Abra Stone's mind. It's definitely the the most visually. It's the most visually. I'm not going to say stunning, but it, it is pretty interesting how he approaches it because she sort of has an out-of-body experience that seems to be the sort like of concept that he built it around in essence yeah she sort of like literally goes up into the galaxy and then comes back down and so she finds her but is unaware that abra is ready because mike flanagan loves degloving scenes mm. um <laughs> we get one of those because she's rifling through the file folders of abra's mind again wonderful there is no way that a modern teenager would have literal file folders in her head, but that's okay. <laughs> but uh, she traps her hand in one of the filing cabinets. She has to rip her own skin off to get out. Uh, and then Abra sort of tortures her on the way out and gets into her head and steals some stuff out of the old style library card catalog. So it's, it's a wonderful sequence. Really, really nicely executed. Very well done. And then she wakes Dan up in the middle of the night of those... while she's still asleep. <laughs> Well, and like I love, I love this because it, in the book, the the psychic parts, you know, where they're exploring the insides of each other's heads, you know, it's a thing that King does fairly often, and he's really big on internal monologue. So that's another reason I've always felt like his work is difficult to translate to the screen. Is how do you show the inside of someone's head and what's going on inside? Um, And this is a great sort of take on that where it it just it doesn't mind investing in that dream logic a little bit and being slightly silly and slightly over the top in presentation because it's a dream it's the inside of your head yeah and yeah it has a kind of dream logic feel to it which i i think sets us up for some of the things that we're going to experience at the end of the film which needs to happen uh, because again, the the psychic abilities in this have been treated very sort of plainly at this point. That you know, oh, you just kind of have these moments and experiences, and and you just kind of move on, right? Oh, I saw a vision of you in my head, or I'm helping you die. But now we're seeing sort of the the scale that these things can be under the right circumstances. And I think Flanagan sort of ratchets that up at a, at a level that makes a ton of sense and is easy for somebody to follow along and be like, oh, okay, we're we're going to this level of psychic ability now. I got you. But so the mission then becomes finding the baseball boy so that they can get an item held by one of the true knots so they can find them. Because in essence, from his experiences at the Overlook, Danny knows that these things are coming for Abra now. That's what they do, right? That's what Dick Halloran told him. The world's hungry. It's going to feed. And if it touches you, it's going to find you. 
which has been happening to him his whole life. So he knows they're coming for Abra. His instinct to protect her is, you know, sort of kicks in, which is lovely. And again, Ewan McGregor is doing great work in this movie mm-hmm. um, across the board. It's it's a reserved performance. He's not too far overboard. Oh, we, we kind of skipped over his, uh, I guess it's when he gets his, his chip. Mm-hmm. It was his five-year chip, I think he says it is, or something like that. And he gives this great speech about how the bottle allowed him to, it was the way that he connected with his dad, right? Because he he didn't, he wasn't old enough to understand him. And so the bottle was the way that he was able to kind of understand his father, which it's, a, I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that Mike Flanagan himself has struggled and overcome addiction. He gets it. He understands it. Um, he's, he's dealt with alcoholism as a part of his life. And this speech, I think, should be mandatory watching for anyone who is, is interested in seeing recovery from alcoholism, because I, I this feels very real. Um, you know, I've we've both watched tons of movies that have AA sequences where the guy gets up and says, Oh, my life's changed. I'm going to be better. This tops all of them by a country mile. It's gorgeous. And and it ties so well thematically to what's going on with Danny in this movie and how he is having to sort of find peace with whatever it was that his father was. And it's, it's just, it's really nicely done. And, and I, I really love that scene. And, and again, it's one that I look at for in terms of Ewan McGregor's career. And I say, man, that's, that's some really good work. Um, so finally, Dan needs to meet Abra. So they go to her house and the dad is, is I, again, I love this man because mm-hmm. any other movie, the dad would just be like, what's going on here? Who are you? Why have you come to see my teenage daughter? <laughs> but in this one, the dude comes out of the house ready to beat ass. <laughs> and it's great because I honestly think that's how, I mean, you know, a 40 year old man, 45 year old man shows up at your house saying, Hey, I need to talk to your 12 year old. Yeah. That's not going to be a good conversation. Um, and so finally everything gets revealed and you know, their, their plan to go after the true knot coalesces. And so they use some additional psychic trickery. They draw the true knot in knowing that they're coming. And then we get a, basically a oh, battle sequence out in the forest as the true knot converge to try and, and take possession of Abra and uh, man, it's great. Yeah. Basically all of the true knot get killed or, or at least most of them. It's, it's really good. I mean, we, we get some great special effects. The true knot dying effect is very good. Um, suitably satisfying for creatures that are so terrible. It's some cool, you know, psychic power stuff with Dan and, and, and Billy sort of rocking out with their hunting rifles, killing all these people. Um, I'd kind of forgotten Robert Longstreet was in this too. He plays uh, what? Uh, uh, um, Barry what the Chunk. Name? Yeah. <laughs> another 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 great solid performance. Robert I just I I am the dude's biggest fan lately. And I don't know. It's it's really good. Uh, it went down pretty much the same way in the book. Very similar. Um, I, I don't I don't think all of the True Knot got wiped out at that point. There was still a chunk of them left alive at the very end, but. Um, for the film, it's it's a really great sort of moment where you feel, you know, you feel like the possibility that they could succeed. And then, you know, Cliff Curtis's character is forced to kill himself by the snake bite. Is that what they call her, I guess? Yes. Because she infects people with ideas. And so she's able to to force him to kill himself, which is is terrible because Cliff Curtis is great. Um and and so the the last couple of sequences are about dealing with the, the last two members of the true knot crow daddy and uh, Rose the Hat. 
And it's it's great. I mean, it's very tense. This whole sequence, I, this whole set of of scenes, you know, that basically comprise the third act, I think, are really compellingly structured. It the story gets very simple. It becomes a sort of chase to to you know a race against the clock, if you will, to save Abra's life. And it's it's all just super effective. But they they use some additional psychic trickery. So uh, I'm pretty sure this is how it goes down in the book too. But Crow Daddy kidnaps Abra, drugs her up so she can't use her psychic. Kills powers. her dad, which sucks. Kills her dad. Yes, mom has gone visiting grandma. Jack Torrance's one-time lover. I think I'm supposed <laughs> to believe. Um, basically, she's strong enough to reconnect with Dan, and then he takes over her body, which I really love. This sequence. Uh, he takes over her body, and then basically causes a car crash that gets Crow Daddy to kill himself, uh, which is awesome. And, and then it's just them versus Rose the Hat, and Dan decides that the best place for this confrontation to happen is back at the open. And and so this is if you are a fan of The Shining and you went to this movie saying this is a sequel to The Shining, this is what you've been waiting for. And Flanagan knows it. He knows he has to sell this. I I think this is the impossible task. This is the oh my god, how am I going to do this? Oh my god, <laughs> moment. Uh, and so his approach is is pretty great. Dan decides that the the overlook will be the the space. Again, this is different from the book substantially because there is no overlook in the book. So, uh, and I'm sure Stephen Gig was just giggling his ass off the day that he wrote this scene. The ending of the book takes place at an overlook, overlooking the overlook. <laughs> That's where the book takes place. The overlook, overlook, and in this one they just they just go back to the overlook, which I think is is a more visually enticing place to end your story, I suppose. But it's it's really cool because thematically, this is where Dan has always been coming back. Right. He's never really left this place. And I like that you said that earlier, because that's really kind of the idea that Flanagan is playing with here. That ambiguity of, of Kubrick's story sort of comes back here. I don't think he's intentionally being that way, but he certainly is sort of helping us understand that this was sort of how this was always going to go. And so he has to, to wake up the Overlook and he knows that him simply walking into it will begin that process as the place reawakens, you know, the, the hungry place reawakens to you know, feed once again this whole set of shots is just stunning the amount of work that went into it the way that the camera camera moves are mirrored and and, and i like that it's recreated it's, it's it's using kubrick's visual language but it's also very like very mike flanagan like it it's how his stuff looks you know like i'm, I'm thinking of the you know, he borrows that long hallway shot of him walking into the gold room. Um, right. But yet, everything is not quite with the same precision and exacting nature that Kubrick had. You know, it's a little less Kubrickian, which I really appreciate. Right. It's it's in the mold, right? It's in the space. It's It's in the mood, the tone, the feel, right? With, with appropriate, you know, time passage. Uh, and, and you know, the decrepit nature of things, but it it really is so evocative of that. That I again, I think if you watch this movie back to back with the original Shining, you actually will kind of get some really good some really good vibes from this sequence. I think it it works very very well. But so we we really find Danny his first stop, or at least the first stop that we're shown, is him revisiting their quarters, and of course the, the door with the axe. You know, with the axe hole into the bathroom where he got out into the hedge maze like he's revisiting all these places but 
Flanagan decides to basically do it wordlessly. There's no conversation. It's just visual. Just here is this guy rediscovering these things that he has definitely not forgotten, but is is experiencing again. And I love how and everything is just paused. The entire hotel paused at the very end of the film, and it's as though nothing has happened. Yeah, it's just frozen. Yeah. Frozen in time and space, uh, waiting for Dan to return. It's it's a beautiful it, it's a beautiful set of sequences and shots. And again, he doesn't necessarily recreate. We do get a, a little recreation of the axe coming through the door with Alex Esso being Wendy Torrance. Um, just to remind you, in case you hadn't seen it in a while, why that hole was in the door, <laughs> I guess. It makes sense. And it, it does provide a little bit of a jump scare, I suppose. But it's it, this is just really good. It, it's It's really well done. But everything is leading to possibly the best scene in the film, in a, in a film that's really had a lot of great scenes. Uh, and that is Dan meeting the bartender, mm -hmm. who we know from the original Shining is Mr. Lloyd. Um, but Mr. Lloyd is no longer Mr. Lloyd. It is now someone else. I, do, I mean, I, I, I guess we could go on for a long time about this, but I, I really don't think we need to say anything other than this is in a scene that could have been literally the laughing stock of this film it's one of the greatest moments in this film yeah as as henry thomas in very little makeup honestly uh he's in a wig so to replicate it, jack nicholson most of it is hair. stubble and hairpiece but <laughs> it's it's henry thomas as not jack nicholson Right. This is the important distinction. It is Henry Thomas as Jack Torrance. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think Flanagan just kind of gets Stephen King is that he understands that the essence of a character that an actor brought to life is something that you can have another actor do for you. Mm -hmm. Because and we don't want a Jack Nicholson impression for this. I do not want a Jack Nicholson deepfake. Yeah. Please. Like I, <laughs> I want the character that scared me that. Jack Nicholson, you know, was iconic for, but it, it had nothing to do with him. Yeah, no, it's it wasn't. I mean, Jack Nicholson's performance is now iconic. And, and he and is very funny. scary as a person. And Jack Nicholson's exactly. a scary dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was a little bit more than that. Like this character and this this idea transcends even that performance. And and this conversation as, you know, Dan is treating him like the father. He is, you know unaware of, of everything he's giving a lot of the same lines or at least tonally he's giving a lot of the same lines as the original mr lloyd now flanagan is also smart here right it's mostly shot in profile it's it's done in such a way that i think it's it provides a lot of space for the audience to buy in completely and it mirrors the shots in the original shining which is also a benefit but it, it does a tremendous amount to sell thomas as torrance and he does a great job the entirety of this sequence, the entirety of this this back and forth, it gives us a ton of information about Danny and what he's been through, about his relationship with alcohol and his relationship with his father. It's it's a Flanagan scene, and I think at one point we're going to call this a Flanagan scene because it's a scene where characters bear their souls to each other in these very plaintive ways, right? Where it's just laying everything on the table. We're not over emoting like because this is a scene where if if you handed this to lesser actors, you and McGregor would be sobbing. 
or he'd have his head in his hands. Well, and and one of my most hated things with the alcoholic trope is the weeping and looking forlornly at a bottle. Yeah. Where he absolutely does not do that in this movie. <laughs> no. Like nobody no, nobody stares at booze and goes, oh, I wish I could drink. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just that's so stupid. Right. And in this one he you know, the the emotion comes as as he's confronting his father, as he's resisting him and his influence and deciding to go a different way, which is essential for his character in the next few moments, but it's 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 just a it's great. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful set of performances from two very gifted actors and a scene that I think provides the emotional heft that will allow the rest of the film to work. And and Flanagan knows it and it, it just goes on like that's the thing. It's like five and a half, six minutes of just that conversation. And it's so good. Then Rose the Hat arrives uh, and she's the one who sort of has additional experiences in the hotel. Flanagan gets the chance to recreate the elevator of blood, you know, the things that we want to see from the shining because you know, uh, but Rose, the hat is just like neat, <laughs> which I kind of love the subversion of that. Right. Like there's no terror. She's like, Oh, that's cool. That's a lot of blood. When you kind of get the awesome. feeling that she's seen places like the overlook before. And that's why that's- it makes such a great battleground is that this is, this is a place that, you know, She's probably visited in many other contexts because you get the i you sort of get a vibe from the overlook that it's it's an entity that exists in a lot of different places. It's not just the hotel. Yeah, totally. Like this is there are places in the world like this, and Rose the Hat in her travels would definitely have encountered them. Um, but they have their final confrontation on the staircase uh, above where Jack typed his treatise. About against being a dull boy. And and it's a wonderful, you know, I like that Flanagan doesn't prolong his final conflicts. Um, I think a lot of directors, when they have, when they kind of build to a big penultimate or, or ultimate fight, they tend to just go too far with it. It just, mm-hmm. they last too long. Midnight Mass did the same thing, right? Everything's contained within that last episode. It's done. And here we get something similar. We get a fight between Rose and Abra, where Abra sort of puts Rose off and they're trying to trap her in a box, which I think is kind of funny. And then it becomes Dan unleashing unleashing the Overlook on Rose. And, and the Overlook very quickly consumes her, um, but not without a cost to Dan. And so here's the thing that... I, I this was not a part of the book at all because again none of the stuff in the Overlook happens in the book, but the Overlook then basically possesses Dan, kind of like it possessed Jack, and so we get a little mini recreation of Jack Torrance's maraud through <laughs> through the hotel chasing Abra this time, and so Abra gets to experience the mini ghosts of the Overlook, the the old woman in two thirty seven, the uh, party going man, you know the twins, you know so on and so forth. And and ultimately, we we find out that Dan is is dead or dying at the very least. And then, in in the final reconciliation between the original book and this film, we find out that Dan didn't 
just wander around the hotel for a while until Rose showed up. He did uh, the only thing that he can do to destroy the Overlook and everything inside. That is to set the boiler on fire, uh, which is exactly what Jack Torrance does at the end of the original Shining. So this is Flanagan literally bridging those two stories by having, instead of Jack being the one to set the boiler alight and blow the building in this time, it's, it's Dan. He's essentially kind of gone back and given Stephen King the the ending to the original movie that he probably really preferred. Definitely. Yeah, like he is he has connected that together. And uh we do get to, you know some cool moments with Dan as he's been possessed and he's telling Abra that, you know, this he's lived for so long in this, you know, all this place and but uh the overlook birds. And and that is it's it's ultimate destiny is for the overlook to find its end. And uh it's it's just a really it's just a really lovely thing. Um, I, I like that Flanagan's movies, he's he's just kind of a master of the bittersweet ending, mm-hmm. right? He's just really good at those, right? We made it out. Things are better. But things are also still kind of bad, right? Um, now, in the book, Dan Torrance survives. Uh, him and Aberstone are going to team up and become superheroes, psychic cops or something. Uh, Stephen King's lost his taste for killing folk, um, central characters anyway. Uh, he still does it. He absolutely does. But he, if he falls in love with a character, they're going to live. Uh, and why should And they should. Because uh, Holly Gibney's the perfect example of this. She keeps showing up and all this stuff now, and I love it. She's he, great. I think he regrets maybe painting himself into a corner by killing off a lot of his cooler characters. I can't yeah, imagine definitely. as a writer what, I mean, what that would be like. I don't have the plethora of ideas that Stephen King has, but if I did, I can't imagine not getting attached. Yeah. And I think at one point he resisted that urge and now he's got the cachet. He can just go with it. Yeah. He's like, if I like this character and I want to see what they're up to, I'm going to do it. I don't care. And so Dan Torrance survives the book. Uh, he does not survive the ending of Dr. Sleep. Um, much like his father, he succumbs to the overlook, but on his own terms and with the intent of saving the life of Abra Stone. But he's not gone, right? Again, in, in true Dick Halloran fashion, he's able to show up and offer some advice, tell her that she's going to be okay, encourage her on her way, and then gives sort of the opposite advice that he got, which is shine on, right? Don't don't hide, shine, because the world will be better for it. And it's it's just a lovely, lovely ending. And she has this moment of connection with her mom where she tell you know, she tells her mom, no, I'm not going to lie to you anymore. And then she walks into the bathroom to deal with a little problem from the over. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's kind of neat. It's this real nice uplift where, you know, she's going to you know, lock them in boxes or destroy them or do whatever, you know, who, who knows? Um, it's, it's great. Um, I don't know. It ends wonderfully. It's, it's satisfying. It's, it's sort of pitch perfect for the tone established with the rest of the movie. It's a little bit bittersweet. It's a little bit sad, but at the same time, it's, it gives us everything that we need to cap this story off and watched with the original shining. It's, it's a nice bookend to that film. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to say this hangs with the original shining. The original shining is, is a straight well, flat out boss of law classic. But in terms of the storytelling going on, I, I think this does dovetail nicely. The the 1980 Shining also lacks warmth. 
That's a very important distinction. Stanley Kubrick was a genius, but he was not a warm director. Um, I know that he was to work with people, you know, did say later in his career that he he got a lot easier to work with. But his films just don't really have that human element to them. In fact, that's kind of what I like about them is they don't really seem like they were made by humans. Um, But in contrast, Mike Flanagan is all all connection and right. all at work. the end of the day that's what his stories are about <laughs> yeah so um, you know they make a nice a nice foil to each other i think would be a good term yeah as well i think they they counterpoint each other as well they, they're they're nice in how you know they take a story that is essentially terrifying and sad and then give it at least some positivity on the back end even though it costs quite a bit to get there but so uh, another sort of knock out of the park for flanagan um there's there's very little here to complain about um could it be shorter maybe um but I, there's nothing that jumps out at me immediately as being inessential um especially in terms of character and character development um and it, quite frankly I, I like flanagan when he takes his time i think he's a better filmmaker when he's not moving i think oculus is you know something like oculus which is more traditional length you know just by a function of when he made it in his career, you know, that movie could actually benefit from another 15, 20 minutes of, of like time to just develop. <coughs> so um, a huge fan of this movie. I, I don't know if we need to say much else. I, I think it's, it's wonderfully shot. It's, it's nicely edited. It's brilliantly acted. Um, and, and it, the fact that it exists and it is not total garbage is a miracle, just a straight miracle. Because, uh, again, anybody trying to do what Flanagan did with this movie should have failed immediately. Like, there there should be no question and that I this film would be And I can't think of another director trash. that could have really gotten close. <laughs> not- I mean, you know, you, you look at the top tier guys, like David Fincher could have done this or something, uh, but it would have been a very, But I wouldn't have wanted to see them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want to see that movie. I, lo- I love David Fincher, obviously. I've talked oh, yeah. about him so much on this podcast. But I... I don't want to see Torrance that. played by Rooney Mara. Uh, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> Dan Torrance played by Michael Gail Douglas. <laughs> Michael Douglas. <laughs> Brad Pitt is Dan Torrance. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, there, there's certainly directors. I mean, because this was kind of a work for hire gig for, for Flanagan. I mean, he was hired to do it. Um, allowed to rewrite it based on the strength of his previous work, which was an excellent choice. But, you know, he's, he's sort of come to it and found some, found that he's adept. He's, he can do this. And so I, I think it's exciting because the Stephen King fandom, which is raucous at times have, have latched onto him as their current go-to guy. So the moment any King property gets announced, it's like, is it Flanagan? (laughs) Is Flanagan involved? Otherwise I don't care. And and I think that's an exciting that's an exciting thing for him because King has a volume of work, incredible volume. We of work. we have decades of of material from him, and we have not yet seen a filmmaker adapt his work in what I think is a fair way. Um, yeah. You know, every time we see someone do a King adaptation, who isn't Mike Flanagan, it's it's more like a game of what did they change? Because clearly they had to change a lot. <laughs> um, right. But I yeah. don't get Even that. Even make this work. I don't get that same 
vibe from anything that Flanagan does. He just kind of, like I said, he gets it. Yes, he he understands how to adapt King because, again, King is so internal, right? Like the Stephen King's plots aren't great; no. they are not. But what he fills those plots with are characters that you root for, that you love, that you want to see. To I read the entirety of Under the Dome in a day. Mm. Because I wanted to see Big Jim Rennie get shot in the fucking face. Yeah, because that dude sucked. Like, that is why I read that book. And, and like, for example, and that I loved it. television right. show didn't capture even a fraction of how much I hated that character and how happy I right. was when he got his. <laughs> right. And, and it's just, it's one of those things, man. It's what King does. And if you're on board for it, it's a ride like no other. But to adapt it to film, most people try, they end up stripping that stuff out almost immediately. And, and his stories, that's when you get the Tommyknocker, right? Yeah. That's, that's the Tommyknocker's <laughs> conundrum, right? Because the Tommyknocker's isn't a bad book. It's fine. But when you reduce it down to the barest beats of its plot, it's not awesome, right? Um, it's, it's just one of those things. But uh in any case, I think it's pretty obvious that this is a hard recommend from both of us. Uh, Dr. Sleep is a, a true hidden gem that I'm super happy people are starting to discover. And if even one person can find Dr. Sleep and love it based on, on our discussion, then I'm a happy camper uh, because it's a movie that deserves to be seen, uh, especially in a double feature with the original Shining, if you can hack it. Well worth your time. Uh, I have a 4K edition coming. Very, very excited about that because I want to see this movie in 4K. I think it's going to look pretty awesome. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's great. Big fan. So um, any other last minute thoughts? Um, we'll probably have more to say about Mike. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yes. At some point, very soon. Um, more things on the horizon. Episode three of the Flancast. That's right. The Flanacast will continue. Um, all right. Well, if somebody wants to uh, hop onto social media and talk at you about Mike Flanagan, where can they do that? Um, they can do that on Twitter. I am Baskinator. Uh, and please talk to me about this and The Shining because I like to talk about set design in The Shining. <laughs> I didn't talk it about is, that tonight because we didn't. We can't be um, here for hours. <laughs> no, no, because it's it's so good. And and Flanagan recreates all the the key components. Oh, it's, it's really amazing. good. Um, well, uh, same thing. You can find me on Twitter at T Baskin and you can get us together at F peace theater on Twitter, or you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. All right. Well, we will be back next week with another discussion of a cinematic disaster, a failure of Titanic proportions, or maybe one that just got swept under the rug. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.